Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spirits and Psychics, Adventures in New Age and the Occult. I'm your host, Morgan Dolan. And I'm Norm. I'm just here to learn. We're here to explore the people and phenomena that have shaped how we understand the unseen world. So, Norm. Mokes. Remote viewing, part two. Yep. What do you remember from last time? I know that the CIA had a sort of abortive relationship with it where it just wasn't reliable enough to, I guess, gain intelligence the way that they wanted to. But it gained enough uh, attention that the military was coming in to be like, all right, this is worth a look. And I know we got a Spoonbender in there and, you know, there were some shenanigans, but there was an amazingly earnest and seemingly credible effort to really scientifically eliminate, you know, the possibility for any kind of chicanery and uh, like make sure it was legit. And I know that you said anyone can do it. And we tried. <laughs> I tried doing it. And I think I, I was oh for 4. I still think that you got the golf course one. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so what, last time we established that one of the issues facing mm-hmm. remote viewing was usefulness. Right. And another one that is very much of its time, now we're in the late 70s, mm-hmm. is the so-called human use question. Now, in the mid-1970s, the CIAs mm-hmm. and other agencies had to go before Congress for performing experiments on human subjects who were not necessarily aware of the risks posed by the research, or mm-hmm. sometimes that they were even being experimented on. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of MK Ultra? You know I've heard of MK Ultra. <laughs> that has been plumbed so deeply in popular culture. I think I don't even know it's true anymore. So it's a big thorny topic, right? With conspiracy theory and stranger than fiction aspects yeah. that basically involves some people with LS- getting LSD without warning, without their permission, as well as many many other things. And in a famous case that happened in 1953, but did not become public knowledge until 1976, one CA experimenter secretly spiked the drink of a fellow scientist who shortly after suffered disorientation and hallucination, and a few days later threw himself off a 10th floor window. That's horrible. While his CIA-provided escort was napping. Oh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Top-notch spooks here. So once MKUltra became public, consent amongst human research became a big thing, and the issues with remote viewing was, is experimentation being done? Nothing invasive is happening. No foreign substances are being introduced. There's no physical intrusions. But what could happen? Could something psychological or emotional come out? There's a lot of unknowns. And there's also a lot of unknowns about effect over time. Is this a question of the people doing the remote viewing and whether there's like abuse potential for the military or the agencies? Is that what they're looking at? It seems to be on both sides, both the remote viewers and the people they're remote viewing. Oh, like, is that an invasion of privacy or something? Exactly. And so this issue is- Who's asking this? Not the CIA. The military. Really? 
Really? It's good. Post Tuskegee, <laughs> they're just like, I don't know, syphilis, whatever. But a dude drops acid unknowingly and jumps out a window. And they're like, we shouldn't invade people's privacy. It wasn't that just, is just that. That is just standing ovation. <laughs> the incident was an example. But essentially, because all these programs have gotten in front of Congress recently, mm. everyone's back on their heels saying, well, are we going to get in trouble for doing this? Where are the parameters again? And I told you outside of recording that this is really a comedy of bureaucracy. Oh, yeah. And this question is the first instance that we see that, or at least in this episode that we see it, where it's getting kicked up and down the chain of command about mm. whether or not it is human use, it's not human use. And in doing so, the program's getting exposed to more and more eyes throughout the organization because it's still a you know relatively clandestine program and funding is getting cut periodically existentially it's this era is a real bureaucratic snooze fest <laughs> until we get to the early 80s what i call the stubblebine years the what the general stubblebine who is in charge and he's a general stubblebine it's a hell of a name finding kind of a cohesive narrative what's going on is really just they're struggling to find a future for what's happening mm -hmm. in light of let's say post mk ultra mm -hmm. if i can read between the lines here it sounds like the real question is can we make this useful because if we can, we can justify it. And if we can't, then it's going to look bad because we've been torturing people for half a century. And when, when it doesn't yield credible results, then it just looks mean. <laughs> so where have we left off the program? We're at Fort Meade, 1978. And let me just paint a picture for you of what Fort Meade looked like, because mm. people outside of the military or who aren't exposed to people who have a military career can maybe imagine it as a bit more glamorous than it is. And it's a, a rather, let's say, intelligence. Mm. <laughs> the intelligence can be that sleek shot of Langley that they always do at the yeah. CA headquarters. That was not where this program was set up in Fort Meade. So when they went there to find space, Fort Meade was already overstaffed. And there was no free space. There were no standalone mm. buildings anywhere that anyone knew about that they could use. So they had to go to the, and they, I mean, the key founders in charge at this point, Skip Atwater, right. had to go to the base engineering office and look at the plans. And there they discovered some buildings that had been condemned and were scheduled for imminent destruction. An old cook school that existed back during World War II and another Two, six two-floor barrack buildings, and a single-level administration building, and a mess facility. They hadn't been occupied in 15 years. I remember, scheduled to be demolished. Right. They moved the program right in there. Hell yeah. <laughs> so this is military intelligence. They're looking for a place to do this thing. And they have to get out the, the blueprints for the entire base to be like, oh, there's a rectangle over here we can go inside. And I've seen some of the photos of the buildings, and it looks like they belong on a summer camp. That mm -hmm. white horizontal oh, yeah. wood, <laughs> it, it looks like they should be having like Camp Tillamucca. Yeah. And Remind me where Fort Meade is. It's in the D.C. circle. Okay. But... In several of the resources, they talked about how once you're out there, you're far enough that making you can't make quite the daily commute into Washington, sure, sure. but you're considered close to Washington relative to other places you could be. Okay. So by the end of 1978, there's a shift in how they're doing RV, remote viewing. Mm. 
Mm. Before it was evaluating the effectiveness against known targets, getting that, we can just say confirmation of, they're getting confirmation of what the target was. Were they right? Were they wrong? They immediately know. And they did that with the double blind coordinates. So neither Mm -hmm. the viewer or the person monitoring them knows. Right. Just like what we did. Yeah. And they've had a lot of success. One of the remote viewers of this era, Joe McMonagall, he's handed an overhead photograph of an aircraft hangar surrounded by planes and told there's something inside the building and to Mm. tell them what this is. Okay. And so this is an example of what they call front loading, where you know something about it beforehand. Right. And they're starting to test it against if you're front loaded, it does that mess up the results. As opposed to just going in blind mm-hmm. and being like, I, I see a golf course. And so here's what how it went down, according to McMonagall. After 20 minutes or so, I brought myself out of a deep place of meditation and slowly opened my mind. The first thing I saw in my mind's eye was what looked like a short, stubby, periscope-type device with some form of optical viewport. I began to sketch and describe it in as much detail as possible. Soon what looked like two layers of a vehicle interior appeared, with what appeared to be arbored seats. There was some kind of hardened military-type computer built in with a modified keyboard, which I also tried to draw. Eventually I began to have images of what appeared to be a very large bullets or shells lying on their sides, indicative of an automatic loader, all following some kind of curved track. They disappeared to the rear of the seats. I looked at my drawing and laughed out loud. That sure doesn't look like a plane I've ever seen. And weeks later, he gets his results. He finds out that the army was getting ready to field this new heavy tank, the Abrams XM-1. There were only prototypes in existence, and they parked one inside the hangar, surrounded the hangar with planes to test how much the front-loading effect would have on the remote viewer. So he he looked in an airbase, looked in a secure hangar, and saw a prototype for a new tank. And he's front-loaded to expect an airplane, because he's saying, look at an airline hangar, there's airplanes everywhere, and then he still gets... The tank. And he's looking at it and going, well, I, I botched this one. That is not an airplane. That's not even aerodynamic. He has to wait weeks before he gets feedback. So imagine walking right. out of that session going, well, I was in meditation for 20 minutes for nothing. Yeah. And so this is very exciting. And the high rigor that we're seeing with SRI, their protocol, they're always looking at where's the hole, where's the leak, how can we make this tighter? How can we prove this stuff doesn't work? Right. And as McMonagall wrote in his biography, which was one of my great sources, it would certainly make for a far less complicated world if it didn't work. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is, that's very eloquent for military intelligence. So also, it's good to note here that at this point, late 70s, McMonagall also thinks his career is dead. Mm-hmm. And dead not because of something he's done, but by staying in this division by staying in this job says this is killing my career Mm -hmm. and he's still pulled to it wait what what was his career outside of remote viewing for the government there's too much i don't want to get it wrong okay he had he had a track though that if he wanted to advance and say move up the ladder he could have but he said i want to do this job knowing that it's essentially a dead-end job in the military you're not going to get promoted you're not going to advance in the unit you're just doing the work in the unit and from mm. what I tangentially know about military careers, there's things you have to check off if you want to get promoted. You need a tour right. of duty. You need this type of job, that type of job, have certain number of postings abroad, that sort of thing. Right. And he's not doing any of that. He's remote viewing in Virginia. He, he just doesn't fit any of those boxes. He's stagnant. 
He's given up on it. And, that's- and he thinks he just drew a square airplane, so he's probably not feeling great. And also you're giving up chances to make more money, better retirement right. benefits. There's a lot of implications by essentially letting your career go out to pasture. So does he account for what seems to be a very counterproductive commitment to this? He talks about being compelled to the work. And having this draw on him, not, I think, in a way that is inappropriate or fanatical, but we talk so much about the path of the seeker. It's Mm -hmm. pulling him to it. And the fact that he's very, very good at it. Mm -hmm. Previous example aside, maybe when he gets the feedback, he feels like he's very good at it, but he's one of the best. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of competition at this era, but he is very good. And when you're that good at something like remote viewing, which feels utterly fantastical, That's pretty cool. I think being good at anything has a certain amount of just human reward. Like, I I can appreciate that. He doesn't talk about imagining what he could do with remote viewing. I don't get the sense he's thinking, oh, when I remote view very well, then I'll be a superhero or I'll achieve these dreams. I think it's this more mundane feeling of, I'm really good at this. Well, and like you said, he's on a seeker's path. So he's not setting a benchmark for what he will discover. He's taking the journey to discover. And he's also not the type of person that is in the military to reach a certain rank. He doesn't, his biography doesn't express any of these types of desires when he went into the military. Okay, so we're still not at the great stubble mine years. Mm -hmm. We have another couple places to land to give you a sense mm-hmm. of what, especially with Monagle's up to at this time. November 1979. Norm, what happened? November 1979. I'm not sure. I'm trying to... I don't know. What did happen? Tehran hostage crisis. Oh, of course. Ugh. Oh, okay. I see where this is going. <laughs> so the manager of the unit comes in and says, I'm just going to say manager because so much of this is an office drama that mm. it's yeah. more acceptable language. That's a Terry Gillum movie. Yeah. Their manager comes in and says, a number of Americans have been taken hostage in a location overseas and they need our help identifying them. He throws a pile of more than a hundred photos onto the tabletop. He says, tell us which are the hostages which are not, and then he just leaves the room. Do they already know who are the hostages? Mm-mm. Because remember, there were so many, and there were people mm. who escaped. I'm sure people got killed. It was it was a big embassy at the time. It got overrun. Hmm. and So, so they, they just want the lineup. Who do we need to go get? And then what does that mean based on who they are, what they know, all that stuff? It's not even as pointed as who do we go get. It's information in this broad way. And Mm. let me tell you, over the course of the hostage crisis, there would be hundreds of remote viewings and it would take years. Is it just this one guy or do they have a team that they kind of pull together? There's a small team and I'm only naming a few because it just, there's people going in and out all the time that to keep track of them unless they have a real, let's say, narratively important role. Sure. It's, it's too much for this little endeavor. But all the reputable sources do keep track of who's here, when they leave, right. what are they contributing. And that's really clear, I think, in the history of this stuff. But yeah. for our casual listeners, we can let a lot of it ride. It's pretty yeah. small, though. It's imagine a small office that's handling big projects. So they say also that the issue is they're being front-loaded. They know what's going on. They know where they're looking. And while initially there is accuracy despite being front-loaded, when you're doing so many multiple viewings a day for weeks and months, you get confused because Mm. you then remember what you viewed. And you can't remember what's real. What did I see? 
What did I get feedback on? What did I not get feedback on? It becomes messy. In terms of your subjective experience, but I assume they're recording this and trying to like find the intelligence and in what he's producing, right? Yes. Someone is gathering all of it to make it useful. Okay. And so what are the viewers targeting? McMoggle wrote that they're targeting everything, that every building, room, every person present, what are they wearing, doing, carrying, what's for lunch, what pictures are on the wall. And also the viewers are told to be on media blackout. They're not supposed to hear anything about the hostage crisis. Mm. So what did the viewers get? They apparently got the secret info that some of the hostages were being held by the Canadians. What? Yeah, they called that. They What? They got info on hostages that weren't in the original pack of pictures. They got accurate floor layouts and accurate info on the treatment of the hostages. Mm -hmm. Then through 1980, they're doing all these views on Tehran, but also other assignments for CIA, NSA, DOD, DIA, Alphabet Soup. So wait, after the CIA washed their hands of the whole thing, this hostage crisis happens and everybody just piles right back on. They're doing other work for the CIA. So they're getting, oh. throughout this time, sort of contract gigs. I'm sure it's in this net of other things. So it's not just, oh, just the psychics are giving us information. It's saying, well, right. let's, let's see if they get us anything useful. They're being added to this pack of resources. But they're being contracted. So it's not, you're coming in with the CIA doing this. It's just kind of like, yeah, give us what you can. Pretty much. That seems to be. You're not in the fold, per se. You're not in that exciting room during Born Identity where yeah, yeah. <laughs> things Everyone's are blinking. Everyone's wearing fedoras, chain smoking. Yeah. It's, it's guys in a real small room. Mm -hmm. And apparently this was... There was a huge snafu during this time. There was President Carter giving a press conference, and he had in his hand and was photographed holding it a classified folder with the name of the unit on it. Ew. And so also the unit changes names so much through this narrative. I've omitted most of it. Sure. But at this time, the name on that folder was Grill Flame. Grill Flame? Yes, like a barbecue. That was the name of the unit at this time. I am fascinated by the naming conventions like used in the military. Like I'm reading about World War II and just every single like planned invasion has, they just have these absurd names. Operation Purple Thumb, stupid shit. I don't know. So Grill Flame. Okay. Girl Flame was the name at this time. So the team ends up doing 227 views on the hostage crisis and producing 183 reports to the client, who the client was the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mm. And in the end, the feedback they got from the Joint Chiefs of Staff was what they said in the report was rather curious. I don't remember exact wording, but the sense of it was that none of the intelligence produced for this project was particularly useful, and yours was no worse than anyone else's. I was, I was going to say, that's a lot of data, regardless of the quality, and intelligence, military intelligence, has always been fallible. I mean, for one thing, there's active counterintelligence going on all the time, but you do have limited information. Like, even if you're flying a spy plane, you have to interpret the photographs correctly. So, like... I don't know. That sounds pretty compelling. They have a very incomplete picture, and they recognize that. So we've got one more story of what Joe McMonagall's up to during these years before we get into, I think, of the real thrust of when we think of the chaos of psychic spies. Uh -huh. So we're still before that. It's the end of 1981. They finally can start laying off the Tehran targets, and McMonagall gets handed a photo a Brigadier General Dozier. He's been told that the general was taken from his apartment in Verona, Italy, 
by mm-hmm. force, and he's got to find him. McMonagall can't narrow down in his first viewing where he might be, other than he's somewhere between Verona and some city with a harbor. But he does get that the general and his wife were tricked into letting the kidnappers in by posing as repairmen, and that the general did not struggle. Okay. And so they keep doing viewings for days and trying to get info. Now, what they don't know is that the Italian police are being inundated by tips and info from psychics. Unsolicited? How's that work? People are, they're just getting a lot of tips. And at first they're open to it, but after a bunch of screw-ups and surrounding and raiding villas with no one inside, they start to say, no more psychics. They were acting on that? Like, it's one thing when you're like, hey, watch out for this man. He's a suspect that's wanted. Everybody starts seeing that person, right? They're doing that, but with psychics? In Italy. They're responding to tips. So if someone comes Mm -hmm. in and says, this villa has this, then they're acting on the information. Also, though I left a lot of the details of this side aspect out, another government official brought in a psychic, not one of the remote viewers, who was just an absolute prima donna while they were in Italy, and all their suggestions were bad. So that soured the pool even more. And the United States Department of Defense, anti-terror specialists, they joined the Italians for the manhunt. And the Italians ignored the suggestion that remote viewing be included, or that remote viewing was in any way different from the psychic tips they've been getting. Fair. But they still do the viewings, and McMonnell gets into the zone. He reports feeling a a sense of knowing when he gets really good info. He has a (laughs) sort of a tactile experience when he feels like he's on the trail. Like he he can often see stuff, but now he can tell when what he's seeing is like real or not not a misfire. It sounded like getting into the zone in sports, like when you're flowing. Yeah, that focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he sees a coastline, sees a mountain, floats inland from the coast city as if following the route the kidnappers might have taken. Hmm. He gets specific plazas and streets and he draws it and tells his monitor that it seems like Padua, which oddly enough was the old name of the current city, Padova. Hmm. All right. This is a little bit of a digression, but you keep on saying he's drawing stuff. Is he like a trained artist? No. Is he a sketch hobbyist? One of the, you might not remember from when I did our little remote viewing exercise with you, I said, draw something. So as they're viewing, part of the training is to draw the things that you're seeing. I'm not very good at that. Like I can describe things. I, I can be articulate about, you know, something visual or even sensory. But if I try to draw it, it's going to look real bad. Well, that's a part of what is being trained when you're doing remote viewing in this way, is to be Hmm. able to sit with what you're seeing in your mind's eye and connect it kinesthetically to producing someone that someone else can look at. So he's only exercising this skill in the context of remote viewing. Yes. He's not going out and doing plein air sketches or something. No, that didn't come up at all. He's sketching what he's seeing. And so with the old name of Padua right. connects it that this might be an older part of the city. And ah. so interesting that you bring up the sketching issue because, well, more so digression, th- this leads us into an interesting issue that happens mm-hmm. with remote viewing. And it's called the issue of search. Surge? Search. Like, oh, search. To look like, for. Yeah. Like a search engine. So names <laughs> of things, you know, towns, streets, they're yeah. pretty arbitrary. The earth isn't called that. It's what people have named something. Sure. And a remote viewer can see a place very clearly. They can draw it. He had some really clear sketches of this these plazas, for example. Yeah. But he doesn't have a street name for it. Kind of like dreaming. You can't read, but you get a very clear shape of a place. You can't 
really get coordinates necessarily from this mm-hmm. as clearly as when you're doing at being asked to find someone as clearly as they want. So it's more of a search for landmarks that can help them hone in. So you can use coordinates to get to a place, but you can't necessarily extract coordinates. Gotcha. So the front loading can help you focus, but you can't do it in reverse necessarily. It crosses this murky threshold because they people who do remote viewing do get impressions and do get names of places and do get a sense of where it might be on a map. But hmm. from reading about it and these experiencing of it, getting a getting a place name is a harder thing than getting, Hmm. let's say, this mountain's here and it's near this hill and there's a river and geographical zoning in. Okay. So I could be like, I'm seeing like a Looney Tunes background. This must be somewhere in the American Southwest. And then eventually you see, you know, a distinctive rock formation and it's like, oh, it's this. Or I mean, imagine describing now the street your parents live on. And Hmm. I don't know how they name streets in your hometown, but it the, that description would not necessarily translate to the, this is the street name they live on. Right. Even with a lot of detail, it's still just going to be houses on a street, not enough to... And if you zoom out from, okay, where that house is on the street, and then where the neighborhood's situated, where's the river, where are the mountains, where's the big trees, maybe where's the fires, other types of buildings, then you can zone in. Hmm. Yeah. But it makes searching for something hard. And... There are psychics who find, or I also say remote viewers as well, who are pretty good at finding people. But it's much more common to know of stories where psychics have derailed search and rescue efforts. Yeah, you hear that. So you you made a, a real meal last time out of the fact that they were really taking pains to classify remote viewing as a very specific thing. But now you're bringing in psychics, you know, in a kind of generic, undefined way. Were they distinguishing the people or just the activity? Like if a psychic comes in is like, I have a feeling, are they distinguishing that from you did a remote viewing? Well, and this was the issue with the Italians. So the DOD has some people saying you should listen to our team of remote viewers. They explain what remote viewing is. The immediate response from the Italians says, sounds like psychics, no psychics. Gotcha. So the semantics are meaningful in how they're actually pursuing this. This There is a, a reason that they're drawing this clear line between remote viewing and, let's say, general psychics, because it comes into ethics, standards of behavior, protocol, mm. and methodology. We really hang on methodology right. holding up. But it does sound like there's a certain marketing aspect to this. Like they know they'll struggle to get funding if they call it psychics, but if they stick to a process and it has a more dry name like remote viewing, then it's like, all right, we can we can engage this. And don't worry, we're not letting this issue drop right here. It'll it'll come back for you. <laughs> of course, of course. It wouldn't be on this podcast. <laughs> okay, so he gets some clear images from where he sees places being held. But unfortunately, he can't quite get street names. Like He sees a plaza mm. with a tannery, and he can get pretty clear images of how the general is being held and what mm. how he has duct tape over his eyes, his mouth. Oh. They're making him listen to headphones with he- music he doesn't like. He's handcuffed to a radiator or something really like that. That's horrible. But none of the information that he gives makes its way to the Italian authorities. Mm. And the general was freed after 42 days into captivity. After the fact, all the drawings are proved to be super accurate, and the general himself sees them. And what strikes him as most interesting is how accurate the insights into his thoughts and feelings were. 
how much he didn't like the music, how he was feeling in different points during the captivity. And he goes so far, the general does, to suggest that they make a class on how to thought control oneself during captivity for officers. So he learns how to meditate when he's being held captive. That would be that was his suggestion that they create mm. something along those lines. So he he's able to come out of captivity and confirm like, yep, duct tape. Like you can imagine sensory deprivation if you have a hostage, but it could have just been earmuffs. And it's like, no, they were headphones, they were playing music. It wasn't it wasn't elevator music. It was Barney song over and over again or whatever they were doing in MK Ultra. So one thing that is happening during these years is that they're getting assignments, but there are also other for- forces at play who are not fans of remote viewing. Mm-hmm. I mean there's differences <laughs> of opinion in any large organization and the military is really the largest organization we could possibly yeah. be dealing with. It's it's a dark mirror held up to society, really. I just want to really hammer home this idea of bureaucracy shenanigans because I'm picturing <laughs> Brazil like in the Terry Gillum sense. I'm seeing it. But one of the famous events that's going on and it adds fuel to the fire for those who are against remote viewing all along this chain of command is a viewing McMonagall does of a giant submarine. So the target okay. coordinates originate with the National Security Council. NSC. And if you've lost track of all the government acronyms, I have too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they don't desperately matter for our purposes here. Yeah. Well, having lived through September 11th, I know that it's this whole fractured mosaic of counterproductive, overlapping, redundant things that supposedly have been unified ever since. So what the viewing show is basically that the Russians or the Soviets are constructing a massive massive submarine with huge destructive capabilities. And there's lots of detail. There's drawings. It gets forwarded to the naval commander at the NCS. And cameo alert, Robert Gates was working there at the time. Wahoo. Former defense secretaries. So wait, was he was he front loaded to view this? He just had coordinates. But they they were looking somewhere for a reason. Like they knew something was up, kind of like with the Abrams tank, right? Mm -hmm. They don't know what but they know something's there. And he broke it down and was like, nuclear sub. Well, the Abrams tank was specifically a test for the remote viewing. Right. But the this, they, they have the coordinates. So they gave him the coordinates. Yeah. And so, but Cameo, Robert Gates is working on that committee or at, in that organization at the time. Mm-hmm. And he would later go on to be there when the program was declassified. And spoiler alert, systematically ridiculed. And Mm -hmm. Gates would go on to say that no remote viewing had ever been done that was critical to national interests. And at no time had remote viewing material ever been used as standalone material. I mean, yeah. So why is this? In his autobiography, McMonagall theorizes that it could be an embarrassment that someone sitting in a small room in a condemned building somewhere on Fort Meade could invade what all of modern intelligence technology could not. Could that be threatening to billion-dollar budgets for new forms of technology? I've thought many years about the matter. My conclusion is that it really had to do with nothing more than stepping on the toes of a few egotistical individuals who at the time were highly exposed at a significant government level and couldn't get beyond hypothetical troop carriers without the assistance of remote viewing. Simply put, we produced information of national-level interest at a time when it was unavailable from any other source, something that some people said then, and still say today, 
that a good remote viewer can't do. Mm -hmm. So he was really accurate with this information. It was what would be considered a hit. And yet it becomes this thing that is cited as proof that remote viewing doesn't work. It sort of gets turned around. Spin a success. It's because they're not using it, right? It's not because it wasn't good intel. It's because they couldn't confirm it in any more mundane, practical, analog way. And I think by the time they could confirm it, they said, oh, this wasn't actually helpful at all. Right. It wasn't enough to put them on the scent of something actionable. And it probably was a little rattling. (laughs) If someone, if they even had, these people even had the ability to say, oh, we got this and it was actually lined up Mm -hmm. very well. Because what happens also is if we, let's say we passively hear a prediction of the future, it's pretty difficult to go and remember having heard that later when it comes true in some capacity, unless you're writing it down, unless you're following up and paying attention. So I think it's very easy that someone could have gotten that and then go about their busy job. It's not as though we have a bureaucratic intelligence apparatus actively trying to record and document all this stuff. And just put the two pieces together. Oh, that actually was could have been really helpful had we used it. I think it's getting lost in this how how do you use it if you get it? Because if you can't confirm it, how do you know it's true? And it becomes... I think that's a jumping off point that's just difficult to digest in this type of system. Yeah. You can only confirm it post hoc, which intrinsically means you're not using it to make decisions. Because if you use it without confirmation and it's wrong, you never come back from it. (laughs) Heaven forbid this generation of spooks who wanted to bomb Fidel Castro with his cigar being loaded with dynamite or some nonsense, and they're worried about appearances and looking foolish. (laughs) Like if it's a stupid idea that is completely impractical, that's worth considering. But if it's intelligence from a questionable source, that's that's ridiculous. So now we're getting into the Stubblebine years. Let's go. The program's now called Centerline, and it continues to change names. But General Bert Stubblebine, I think he was kind of done dirty in John Ronson's book, Men Who Stare at Goats, by the anecdote in his first chapter of him trying to run through a wall, kind of believing <laughs> that he can displace the atoms and energy. And I just yeah. really don't think we should be judged by our least successful ideas. I think that's fair. He's a real open minded general. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) And he's open-minded about essentially what he doesn't know, which leads into this crux of the paranormal. That's What else would you be open-minded about? You would have to be what is unknown or unfamiliar, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's curious. He seems to live in a place where it's like, we don't have all the answers, and how these things seem to work, how do they work? Hmm. So he's he's into it. He's he's into theosophy. He's he's into it, man. Hmm. And he... Diverts a bunch of money, perfectly legally, but by taking control of the program, he can essentially give them a bunch of funding. Mm-hmm. And his tenure encompasses pretty much 1981 to 1984. So he's cashing in his professional credibility as a military officer. I don't know if it's so much cashing in so much as he is stepping into this role and now he's going to do something with it. Sure. I see it more as the the new CEO has come in and is restructuring things in his own interest. Okay. Because there's this is only one little division in a much larger behemoth that this general's in charge of. Yeah. Including other real I mean, real things. But the, the point is, he's not doing this full time. Like, he's not just living in the <laughs> abandoned building. No, no. He's a big general. This is a small... Yeah, 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 yeah. He's just making sure that this little program that's underneath his purview is getting funding and getting 
annexed properly. And it's, yeah. a, it's a pretty small team. And their focus shifts to less Soviet Union, more terrorism. Hmm. This is in the early 80s that they're doing this. Mm -hmm. That's really wild. That is pre, what is it, 88, 89, that Reagan knocks down a wall? Mm -hmm. Or Mr. Gorbachev? McMonagall reports doing 68 separate intelligence problems addressing terrorism. 11 incidents in Africa, 29 in Europe, 36 in South America, 31 in the Middle East, and 61 on U.S. soil. Oh, and you said these these are cases that they used the remote viewing system for? That they're looking in on, they're gathering intel, they're examining. So they're looking at terrorism worldwide. So that's a lot of data. Like that's a huge sample size. And I assume post-talk they can validate or invalidate well, this seeing, intel. Is they're producing a bunch of intel, probably a bunch of reports. Yeah. And then how can we make it useful? There's so much information right. when you're getting this picture's on the wall. This is what they're wearing. This was, you know, it's, it's so much chatter, I think yeah. is the word they would use for it. And what else is going on at this time? Ingo Swan, he's back at SRI and is starting to develop how remote viewing can be taught and trained mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how to train more remote viewers to join the unit and grow the unit. This is kind of their only growth focused phase. Mm. And again, through SRI, they get reliable results. And Stubblebine not only brought the funding, but he's also accelerating their workload. He's bringing them in on more stuff. And he moved the entire program to become what's called a special access program. And it's more need to know, more secretive, there's clearance, that sort of thing. It's being elevated into something to be taken seriously. So he's he's giving them the resources, but he's also demanding output. Like he's he's using what he's got. And also taking them off the books. I mean, they're very much on the books, but taking them outside of the scrutiny that they were under when they were ferreting this human use question just up and right. down people's desks. And so there's another thing going on in these years at a higher level than just the our little program of remote viewers. And that is that General Stubblebine is also facing off with General Noriega in Panama in what John Ronson described as a psychic war. What? So Noriega would was very into the unseen world, as is as are most people down in Latin America. There's a more respect for it and awareness of it. And Noriega would tie black ribbons around his ankles. He placed little scraps of paper in his shoe with names of his enemies written on them to protect him against spells cast by said enemies. That's wild. This is a digression, but historically you have there's a weird association here. Like wasn't Hitler really into the occult? And while they were, you know, pillaging artifacts and art, they were also, you know, investigating kind of a prototype of this kind of thing. Is there anything arcane that the Nazis can use? Nazi occultism could be another series of ours if we ever wanted to touch it. It's definitely a thing. Nazi occultism. All right. So Noriega, mm -hmm. summer of 1983, General Stubblebine asked the Fort Meade team to dive in to which room of a particular villa in Panama City Noriega's staying in, and what Noriega was thinking about mm -hmm. giving a huge, giving, really going in. And simultaneously, Stolbein's ordering a team of non-psychic spies to rent an apartment down the road from the villa. And the moment the Fort Meade guys give their report, Stubblebine phones the non-psychics in Panama and orders them to climb over the wall, get inside the villa, and plant bugs in Noriega's rooms, the rooms identified by the psychics. 
or remote viewers, I should say. This sounds based on what you've told me so far of as the, this is the first time that they have in real time tried to gather remote viewing intelligence and validate or supplement it with real time, call it analog intelligence. This is one of the only times it seems to be used of what I've read. I wouldn't be surprised if it was somewhere else, but surely sure. Stuppelbein's betting on it because he's got a team and he's using it real time. And they got the room, or at least we think they got the room right. But unfortunately, they didn't get the information that two of Noriega's guard dogs were on the compound. Uh oh. And so the other spies were chased back over the wall. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Noriega responded to this incident by placing a huge amulet around his neck and driving to a nearby breach where his personal sorcerer, a Brazilian guy named Ivan Trilla, erected an illuminated cross to ward off American intelligence operations. So he did his own ritual in response. Mm -hmm. Is he aware that they're doing psychic spying? Like, I understand his dog's chasing away guys trying to plant bugs, but the leap he makes is, I'm being, like, psychically monitored? I see his actions really in a lens of anyone who has any exposure to the Afro-Latin-Cuban religions of people using the unseen world to infiltrate you, to attack you, mm. to penetrate you in some to be offensive. Sure. And in that whole part of the world, offensive I want to say, offensive psychics, offensive actions in the unseen world are really common. And so he's perceiving it because there's both the physical correspondent people tried to break right. in and then taking, I'm sure, physical action with his security and also energetic action. So he's just being thorough, really, based on what he understands. He's aware that there's two components. Mm. You know, there's what's going on in the physical realm, and then there's what's going on in the energetic realm. So is the suggestion here, the US is trying to do remote viewing, and he is getting an inkling of that. Like, not only are we getting good intel on him, but the means by which we're getting it, he is in some way, he knows he's being watched. I don't know. If that is, if we can make that direct of a comparison, I think he's in a way being using his awareness of the energetic world to his advantage. Okay. It's similar to if, let's say, you have a breakup with someone, someone mm -hmm. you've had a really intense relationship with. In your real life, you can do the things you need to break up with that person. You can block their number, move away, you don't let them in, you don't see them. But there's also energetic things you can do. And this varies by tradition. So I'm just going to brainstorm the things that come to mind. You can have someone cut the cords between you and that person. You can mm. have someone put up shields. You can, if you want to be offensive with it, you can send energetic malice their way. You mm. can, there's things you can do then that makes the breakup a bit more permanent from an energetic unseen world standpoint. So just ritualizing the emotional goal that you have. It can be ritualizing, but also in some traditions, it's very functional. You don't mm. have to be that invested at all. You can say, okay, here's the cash cut this person out of my life. <laughs> like, and, I don't care what you do, just take care of this. And then you know it's done. Huh. And you can perceive that on different levels depending on your own sensitivity, let's say. Hmm. But a lot of traditions are real money in, money out. Give me the results and... It's just a profession. It's like any anything else. Mm -hmm. This is what I need. Use what you're good at to do it. So let's go back to the open-minded yeah. general who probably could would have understood that. Had we explained it to him, he probably yeah. would have been fully on board saying, all right, let's get our own version going. He really liked to host spoon bending parties. 
Of course. And in what is probably universally considered poor taste, he would approach other high-ranking military men and politicians at like black tie events that he was at, at wa- in Washington, including his very religious superior officer, and offer to bend forks for them on site, like in the moment. The general's doing this. Yes. And he would host parties where everyone did it all at once together. He thought it was fantastic. And his superior officer, the very religious one, immediately looked at him. And I don't think he said it, but he certainly thought it was <laughs> Satan did that. Oh, Mar. <laughs> so not not even incredulous about the realistic possibility of this, but it is real and it is tainted with the ultimate evil. Or at least somewhere on the spectrum of even if it's very just purely a physical trick, it's mm. a devilly trick. It's, it's satanic for it to happen, and it is also satanic for you to suggest it could happen or try to do it. Great, great. I love the collision of traditions that's going on here. How Stumblebine ended up forced into early retirement is no mystery when he cannot read a room. (laughs) Yeah. But again- Chasing after people (laughs) with a spoon. But according to John Ronson's interview with him, which was back when this book was published in 2005, the general had an explanation. He said, you can't get stale in the intelligence game. You got to keep thinking outside the box. And I think Stumblebine, you know, I think he was one of us in that sense. I mean, that's, I've heard this advice from a, a general in my life, which is, you're only as good as your last gig. And I know he was saying that coming from a military background, but he would say it applies to life in general. You're only as good as your last gig. And that's what that sounds what this general is saying. So now during the Stubblebine years, they start liaisoning with this place called the Monroe Institute, which helped develop people's abilities to have spontaneous out-of-body experiences. And the idea was that it would lend itself really well to remote viewing. Mm. And as general, in general, it's a course of self-discovery. It worked really well. It uses what sound like signals and wavelengths in this very early type of binaural beats. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As well as recording tapes that were probably used in the, seems like a hypno, self-hypnosis respect. Right. And there were electrodes at some point. They're a little bit hard to draw, draw the clear parallel of what they're doing. But for the small group of remote viewers that did this, it was pretty awesome. And they then got tasked with how do you make a program that could be used for the common officer? So they've they've really systematized this. They've they've been practicing it. They've got some people who are good at it. And now they're looking at what are all the ways we can manipulate the environment to train people, improve their success rate, and just get it more consistent. Because also, this is an era where they're focused a lot on training. How can we systematize mm-hmm. this? How can we make this so that we can build up this program and make it more effective? And this program for the common officer, they end up developing is called RAPT, R-A-P-T, Rapid Acquisition Personnel Training. And it's done specifically for the military, because they can't be having officers mixed in with civilians doing self-discovery stuff. And you can still take this program at the Monroe Institute, not RAP, but the gateway program with that inspired it. It's uh, 2200 bucks, and it's five overnights in Virginia. Go on. I didn't want to tempt you with too many details, but the experience is still there. So it's still there to you be said had. 2200? 2200 for six days. And you don't have to be military now? No, no. This is the original program was never for the military. It's called the Gateway Program. They developed oh, a spin off of it that was specifically for the I military. I see. I see. And for the common officer, 
The experience was intended to expand consciousness, broaden the perception of reality, and as accomplished through patented technology that synchronized right and left brain interaction produces pink amplitude with optimum brain waves. I mean, this is standard binaural beat binaural, stuff. Binaural, yeah. And the changes that can follow, because you go into deep experiences and then have discussion about them, you range from personal, intellectual, emotional, you have one or two hour sets, and the topics can get really philosophical because you're going in deep, you're away, you're having a... Yeah, you're looking deep within yourself. Yeah, they, the military bills it as a leadership course. <laughs> uh, not, not wrong. It's strictly voluntary because McMonagall's especially conservative with recommending the average Joe, in the, <laughs> pun intended, in the military go and do this type of thing if they're right. not ready for it. He's, so he's very cautious with how he frames it. And so it has to be strictly voluntary. And the command gets swamped with requests. Really? The first two programs, rounds that you are filled to capacity, pretty successful participants included the commander himself, our, our favorite general, Stubblebine, a couple of senior staff level chaplains, senior okay. commanders from Hawaii, Panama, Germany, Okinawa, the command psychologist, a chief of staff, a fields operations people, counterintelligence agents, and reactions pretty much range from, I don't get it. To absolutely outstanding. Huh. So at the worst, they didn't feel that they could flex that muscle well. Or they're just like, what is this? But no one was going through it and going, this is stupid. No, shut it down. We're just going, what? I don't get what they're trying to get. make me touch. Standard, now what we would think of as sort of standard retreat things. Sure. But it's the early yeah. 80s. <laughs> well, this is no bad feedback from these first two sessions. But don't worry, that changes. The... <laughs> The third go-around, they have this last-minute vacancy for a spot that has already been paid for and billed, but the guy, the soldier can't do it. So there's another guy that wants to come in, and he initially gets rejected because they haven't done the full background check on him, haven't vetted him out, done all the questionnaires, but he pushes and pushes, and eventually someone accepts him, and he gets on to the retreat bus, as I like to imagine it going away (laughs) to camp. Off to summer camp, yep. And uh, he freaks out. Very agitated, accusing people of not being who they say they are, removing his shirt, sweating, playing aggressively with a ballpoint pen. And he gets taken straight to Walter Reed Mm -hmm. and put in the psych ward. And the command unit commissioning the stuff, Stubble Benz, he clears the Monroe Institute of any wrongdoing or liability. And the guy goes on to have a fine career. This was really like a minor blip. Like He completely recovers. He just freaked out. (laughs) And post-mortem of the incident shows he had a history of like non-disclosed mental health issues, mm-hmm. which had a lot of people questioning how he even got his security clearance. Yeah. But turns out he had a connected father. There you go. <laughs> it's nepotism again. While the incident itself wasn't bad, it signals blood in the water for Stubblebine's critics, which, I mean, yeah. he's, he's <laughs> amassing every time he whips out a bent spoon. <laughs> yeah. And He's not being discreet. One of the general staff officers described it thus. He said, if we'd been in an armor human in Germany and killed several soldiers in a training accident, it wouldn't have raised as big of a stink as this one temporary mental lapse of a junior officer. That is cutting on several levels. And I'd love to say that, you know, there's a one last cinematic set piece for the Stubblebine years. And somewhere post-wall incident, running into the wall, I mean, and the incident of trying to levitate himself off of the floor at his house one late summer night, 
This is probably the most cinematic exit we'll get. The general flies down to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where the Special Forces Command Center is. Mm-hmm. He's in a meeting with other top brass, and he begins, I'm coming down here with an idea. If you have a unit <laughs> operating outside the protection of mainline units, what happens if somebody gets hurt? What happens if somebody gets wounded? How do you deal with that? He surveys the blank faces around the room. Psychic healing. Yeah, buddy. The general points to his head. This is what we're talking about. If you use your mind to heal, you can probably come out with your whole team alive and intact, and you wouldn't have to leave anyone behind. Pauses, then adds, protect the unit structure by hands-off and hands-on healing. He's not getting the reaction he wants. So he says, okay. (laughs) Wouldn't it be neat if you could teach somebody to do this? Boom. Whips out a bent spoon. (laughs) Silence. All right, let's talk about time, he says. What would happen if time is not an instant? What if time is an x-axis and a y-axis and a z-axis? What if time is not a point but a space? At any particular time, we could be anywhere in that space. Is that space confined to the ceiling of this room or 10 million miles? Physicist goes nuts when I say this. Dead silence. Mm-hmm. And later, he re- reported in his interview with John Ronson, with whom I took that exchange from, to tell you the truth, John, I pretty much blocked out the rest of the conversation. <laughs> this guy just went full Shark Tank <laughs> in front of a, a crew of intelligence and military officers and clearly has just, if he ever had social intelligence, just whittled it away over his entire career until he reached this magnificent point. I, yeah, and he just, that's, he, then 1984 is up and he's pretty much donezo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is. Wow. He really was swinging, though. Good on him. Just, I think it's great. <laughs> so, it's a it's a bold move. Oh, I kind God. of respect it. I respect the, the chutzpah. Can't get stale in the intelligence game. That's right. <laughs> Can't get stale. <laughs> Gotta come up with another hit. Maybe that could be a slogan for a t-shirt of ours. Can't get stale. <laughs> Can't get stale. Yeah. So now we're entering a new phase. Mm-hmm. We're mid-80s, and... There's about 10 years left of this program before it gets shut down and declassified. And I thought of what I could call it, and I stumbled across Things Fall Apart, Military Protocol Edition. So broad strokes, what starts happening? People start retiring. And by the middle of the 80s, the group composition looks really different than it did in the late 70s. Ingo Swan spent the mid-80s trying to build a trainable program, and he was very rigorous, and bringing these different facets, the sketching, and really trying to develop a system that could Mm -hmm. be used. And he did, and it worked, but he ends up being cut as a contractor at some point. Mm. And while it's easy enough to describe the process of remote viewing, like we did in our little exercise, getting good at it, quieting your mind, the sketching, sitting with what you're seeing, it's a a training thing. It requires some study. As with anything. There's exercises. And anyway, he gets cut as a contractor. And I think that's the last hard line we see of the methodology being really above board. So we've got basically a generational turnover, Mm -hmm. and that's leading to a cultural shift. And the guys at SRI are leaving, they've moved on to other things. Yeah. And just all the players that I haven't named yet, so many people, they're retiring, suddenly planned, they've left. By the mid-80s, Joe McMonagall leaves, and new people come in, and they're trying to get them trained up. But that demand for methodological rigor and taking it really seriously isn't there. 
in the same way. Mm-hmm. So people are coming in looking at it more. Are they just not taking it seriously? Like, is it a lark? Or are they just not critical thinkers? No, it's, it's neither of those things. I think it was what set apart remote viewing in the early years was the protocol feedback, right. controlling the variables and wanting to keep it really, really clean, really wanting to look for how they can poke holes in it, being right. half skeptical that it, wanting to disprove it, that's it. Mm-hmm. And that starts to fade. So the skepticism is melting away. That scientific rigor yeah, yeah. is starting to melt away. And at the same time, they're also getting further demands to make it more useful, to make it more operational. And we talked about how search and finding things was difficult. Right. And this was also laid out in one example from this era, which was they're trying to find a hostage that was kidnapped in Lebanon. And while the remote viewers can zoom in and say, this is what the village looks like, here's the hut. How do you differentiate a bunch of villages and it it becomes chatter? The absence of street names and coordinates is still a huge gap. And the other thing that gets asked a lot of them is to predict things. So they're blurring the line in psychic ability here Mm -hmm. from remote viewing to whatever, forecasting? Well, if you you are looking at a group of people that can remote view and you're just Mm -hmm. thinking purely tactically, what do you ask them to do? You ask them to find stuff and you ask them if they can predict anything that's going to happen that you need to be aware of. That that does suggest, I mean, like you said, there's a lack of procedural accountability, but it does also seem like they're almost being too credulous here. Like if one thing is possible, anything is possible. So let's just go for it. They're just throwing spaghetti at the wall at this point. Well, the way Paul Smith and he was, he's the biography that I used for this second half of the era. Mm-hmm. He describes it as, you know, the past and the present even are more or less fixed. So you can view those. Even if something's present, sure. you okay. get the coordinates and it's just happened in real time. So it's still technically in the past. Sure. But the future, you know, the future has tendrils. It hangs on free choices. It's much more wibbly wobbly. So you mm-hmm. could, let's say, view something correctly in the future, but through trajectory of free will and choice, it doesn't come to pass. How do you ever confirm it? You're getting out of what is a key tenet of remote viewing, which is getting feedback. Right. Anything could be a possibility that one could imagine. And so this prob- this becomes a problematic dyad of predict and search, the requests they start getting a lot of. And mm-hmm. it's not suited to remote viewing the way people seem to want it to be. And another factor that contributes to the deterioration of the program over the next 10 years is personnel choice. Now, remember, this is not a unit you join if you're really serious about your military career. Right, right. There's not a lot of advancement opportunity. And I like to think that has less to do with the subject matter and more just how it's placed in the matrix of it all. And one of the guys that ends up joining the unit in 1983 is named Ed Dames. And Ed Dames really likes aliens. (laughs) Okay, I do too. Let's go. And crucially, he wasn't trained to be a remote viewer, though he learned the technique and could do it. Hmm. He was trained to manage them and to run the sessions. Okay. And make sense of the whole, what the remote viewers are reporting. Yeah. And to make the report and pass that on. All right. He's a handler. He's a bureaucrat. Okay. So I'm not going to get so far into it because I don't think a full biography is warranted about Ed Dames, you know, where he grew up and where he was from and so on. He just seems like the guy in the office who's just like everyone else, who's nice, charismatic, but when you're on a bus together, he will not shut up about aliens. All right. He's he's passionate about this thing. And he seems to have that kind of smug certainty. Mm. 
And he's really fond of using innuendo and claiming he has inside government knowledge. Okay, at, buddy. That certainty. <laughs> yeah. He loved something called the Durantia book. It's a 2,500-page book published in 1955 that claims of divine revelation and gives a weird account of history and the constitution of the universe and... What? You know, like the aliens live here and how how the universe is set up. Well, the, but this one is of those, blended with theology? Yes. God and aliens. Alternate history of the universe from the 50s. Uh-huh. And he also was really fascinated by the idea of angels and angelic intervention. And he's also the one running their remote viewing sessions and controlling targets. And will come into the office and say, I was remote viewing the Loch Ness Monster last night. Oh, buddy. Completely seriously. And here's the data I got on it because we're doing remote viewing. And it's the the raison d'etre of our whole unit. And I just did it on essentially Bigfoot. (laughs) But this is in the midst of trying to make it more useful. (laughs) And them doing it on legit terrorism targets. So Right. But he's taking his work home with him, and he's starting to blur the line. And he will give the remote viewers targets. He'll slip them in, and then at the end of the session, they'll find out they were remote viewing a star galaxy or what's called anomaly targets. So Mm. probably doing things like looking at Atlantis, Lemuria, anything that's... Yeah. They were referenced repeatedly as anomaly targets. (laughs) He's 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 breadcrumbing the X Files right now, and also leading them sometimes, which you're not supposed to do as the monitor. Right, yeah. So that's why I mean the methodological rigor is getting lost as the years go on, and it gets so frustrating that the rest of the office pranks him in 1988. They decided to run it the same as any other remote viewing session, only they would all know the target in advance, so they're providing feedback on purpose, mm-hmm. and. They give just bits and pieces, you know, one or two word groups, and then little perceptions like, well, some reported a person was involved used stealth. He operated only at night. Someone else described he, this target's really good at infiltration, crossing national frontiers without official authorization, carrying packages and other items that are not being checked by customs, cargo stuffed into a sack, carried on the back of an open conveyance. Another viewer had the idea of it's coming from the north, mm-hmm. and someone else suggested flying's involved. Yep. One perpetrator they're describing drops down onto unsuspecting American homes in the middle of the night, <laughs> and it's tied to a holiday or an anniversary. And he's not getting all of this at once. He's he's do- going interview by interview, putting the pieces together. And he's getting more and more agitated and worried thinking he really has something. And finally, he works it out. He says, okay, there's going to be a terrorist attack on the United States sometime before the end of the year. Oh, no. There's one main terrorist Mm -hmm. supported by nine a local cadre, many of whom are quite short. His primary base of operations (laughs) is in the north. He's disguised by facial hair. Terrorist would assault... The terrorist would assault from the north, crossing across mm-hmm. the Canadian border. Yeah. He would avoid detection by transporting himself and his materials through the backcountry using beasts of burden, <laughs> make his final move across the border into the United States by air, using yep. an ultralight aircraft that he assembled <laughs> that he assembled in Canada. <laughs> and at the time that he's finishing the report, it's like mid-December 1987, yeah. and he still didn't get it. They had to reveal it. Oh, buddy. And as Paul Smither counts, Ed Dames laughed. He had a good sense of humor. He thought it was funny, but he did not get the message behind why they pranked him. Oh, man. 
So he thought he was in on the joke by the end. Yeah. Oh, guys, you really got me. So they all, they met together and got their stories straight and like dished out who was going to reveal what pieces. And they just fed him Santa Claus intel. I don't think they even needed to get on the page about who would dish out what, because you're all, as long as you know the target, you can, you're doing remote viewing or pretending to, right. so you can reveal however it's coming to you. And then Just it's the- enigmatic, re- but incomplete details. And this a monitor's job to amalgamate it all and make sense of right. it. Right. And he did a great job. Yes. And he's going to come back a little bit later. He gets into the private sector with gusto, let's just say. <laughs> yeah. And another thing that leads to the methodological deterioration and- it's really combined with office politics. So it's 1986. A woman named Angela Della Fioria is involved in the unit, and she and another remote viewer monitor named Fern Govan. Again, we're, I don't want to get too far into names. Yeah. They come out and say to the rest of the group, in the wake of a superior officer has just retired, so the mm. office dynamics are changing, and they say, Angela here can channel information from the help of her guides, and we're going to use that now on real targets. Guides like, I'm going to ask spirit and spirit will tell me. Channeling, yes. And at the time, channeling uh, was all over the New Age community. Seth Speaks, Seth being channeled by this medium, Jane Roberts, and a bunch of others that would mean absolutely nothing to you, but I mm. sure did note them for future episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's just the latest trend in the sort of New Age spiritualist community, and she has brought it to the establishment. So one of the more rigorous colleagues brings up methodology as an issue. She says, shouldn't mm-hmm. we test any new methodology thoroughly before we adopt it as an equal partner to this remote viewing stuff that we've been doing for years? Great question. And, you know, remember, this is still a classified program that they do. Yeah. They're essentially left out to do their own thing, but they basically, she basically gets met with, uh, yeah, we've totally tested it. Totally works. Don't worry about it. Amazing. Very. And who has not had that happen in the office? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Paul Smith, in his biography, he clearly tried to engage with this in a more thoughtful critique than it was really worth because he's mm-hmm. trying to address it on its own merits to get them to see reason. So he points out from an intelligence standpoint, the problems with the new methodology. She, Angela, is claiming to have help from her guides. Mm-hmm. Well, then they should be evaluating using the criteria of an intelligence source by asking questions a spy handler would ask a prospective source. Right. First, is the source who they say they are. Mm-hmm. Second, <laughs> what is the placement of this source? Just rudimentary fact-checking and confidence-building. In other words, does this person work in a place that has the information I need? Mm-hmm. Are they... Who, you know, and are they who they say they are? And lastly, can the source be trusted? <laughs> yeah, he means he, he's trying to get through to them, and he's also blown off. Of course. Simple, basic questions. We just don't have time for it. And so this divides the office. She has this channeling thing. They're not able to train up new recruits. The, the methodology train is essentially lost at this point. Yeah. They cannot train people with the same rigor. It's really the beginning of an uncomfortable office space. Yeah. Well, they've gone from a trainable skill to a special person, in essence. Spirits talk to me. I don't flex this muscle. I'm chosen. Whatever. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's being made clear in the intelligence he's providing. I think it's all being lumped together when it's those reports Mm -hmm. are sent out. So they're poisoning the well with her now. And they're also front-loading her a lot. But Mm -hmm. here's the wild thing. She's not always wrong. Well. (laughs) Though her results are less accurate overall, and- you know, she's experiencing a lot of front loading. This one incident 
was a pretty astounding hit from her, which clearly notable. So it's 1989. A customs agent has gone rogue and is accused of aiding and abetting drug traffickers. And everyone thinks he's in the Caribbean. Okay. But Angela comes in and says, Lovell, Wyoming, on a campground near an Indian burial. No one believes her. (laughs) And even the people they further the information onto, they sideline it because they're so focused like on this guy having escaped south. Yeah. And we would rather go to the Caribbean than Wyoming <laughs> if we're going to supervise this. But someone further after receiving this intel, just on the off chance, alerts the Wyoming State Police. And dude, they apprehend him in a camping trailer near an Indian burial ground. Apparently, the day of the viewing, he'd been right inside Lovell, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's compelling. But as the the founders of this, I'm looking for an alternative explanation to poke holes in how she might have gotten that intel. Could have been anything. Or if she's flexing, let's say, a psychic skill, you can get information from having, let's say, psychic viewings. But it's not the remote viewing they're trying to do in this office. Right. And I think that's the thing, is that it's not that it's not real, necessarily. We don't know there's no testing of her. There's no feedback. There's no way to say, right. what is she actually doing? Yeah, that, it, that rigor is, has been lost on her. Yeah. Methodology has disintegrated at this point. And so even if you're saying, yeah, Angela was pretty psychic. She could do these things. It's not usable in this format. Hmm. The, it cannot be confirmed. It can't be tested. It can't be trained. So that's one of the things I find so interesting about remote viewing is because it's focusing on itself as a learnable skill, as a trainable methodology, it's essentially saying you can train your psychic skills, which sure, you can then go off and do things with and let's say connected guides. And that's not something we can just throw away. But it's maybe not the methodology you want to use all the time in a classified program for the military. If I've paid good attention, they've been getting good intel throughout the duration of this department. They've been working, but they've never gotten it in a way that they could really act on. Or if they did act on it, like in Panama, they weren't successful in trying to leverage the intel. This sounds like the first time in real time they applied the intel. Like they got the guy, right? Mm -hmm. They... They solved the case. Well, it's the only time, but there's probably been other things where their intel was helpful, but mm-hmm. it's not being used in a way that can give them sole credit for having advanced right. knowledge. So much of it seems to be wrapped in with other methods of intelligence that it's not becoming standout. Had they done more things like in Panama, where you're getting remote viewing to do something ahead of time and then following up with agents on the ground, using it like a real piece in a mission, it'd be a totally different story. But I think that assumes so much risk onto the people signing off on that type of operation, the risk to life, the risk to – it can't be done in good conscience. Yeah, they just can't reconcile that. I mean (laughs) – it's nice to to imagine them <laughs> having a conservative attitude toward risk. So there's one last problematic figure as the unit continues, and his name's David Morehouse. And he joins mid-1988. He's described as charismatic, charming, and he pretty quickly turns into the type of coworker who's just never in the office. Mm-hmm. He just gets away with everything. This is, again, some aspect of army bureaucracy. A lot of them have side gigs at this point, like hobbies, pet projects, things that you know, kind of work on during office hours, or maybe you're out yeah. for a day doing. But David Morehouse is straight up having another business. <laughs> and prospective clients like call his office phone. He's gone like 200 days out of a single year. So there's zero accountability in this office now. How is this happening? The 
mood is really tense, and it got never got reported because the person in charge didn't want to blow the lid on everyone else's you know, hobbies and messing around at work. So they they just don't want to rock the boat. This guy twigs that and fully abuses it. Mm-hmm. Goes just takes it as far as he can. And he left in 1991, staying like the shortest amount of time in the unit. And he ends up following Ed Dames, who's left by that point into another another assignment before eventually going into the private sector with him. And he claimed to have done 47 projects with 1,200 remote viewing sessions, which would have been more than people who'd been in the unit twice as long as him. Yeah. And obviously that wasn't true, but he claimed it. <laughs> yeah. And he published one of the first biographies about this project. So he really got a jump on the narrative. So he's got the least exposure. He's never there. And he's being the most vocal and making the biggest claims mm-hmm. about his personal engagement with it. He wrote a book called Psychic Warrior, which is pretty wild. And it came out at the beginning of all the biographies coming out. Yeah. Well, that almost sounds like he kind of broke the dam because he was clearly making it all up because he wasn't there. And then people who were there maybe wanted to correct the record. And so we actually got real inside stories from people who (laughs) were actually inside. But don't worry, that wasn't the only way he was shitty. Mm -hmm. Despite having a wife and three kids, he had a wandering eye and he had an mm-hmm. affair with an enlisted man's wife. Dope. And so while adultery between people of similar rank is usually like, eh, let's not worry about it too much. It's a much bigger deal when it's between officer and enlisted. Amazing. And especially because the woman's husband was in his chain of command. So there's, oh man, okay. And it got so stressful and so intense and he ended up being given the choice of being court-martialed or... The equivalent of dishonorably discharged. Yeah. Oh, here's what it's called. It's called discharged under other than honorable conditions. And so he got committed to a psych ward at Walter Reed by threatening to kill himself right before the court-martial got started. And Mm. according to Paul Smith's biography, he went to go visit him and Walter Reed somewhat reluctantly. I didn't get the sense they were great friends. And Morehouse wants Smith to testify that's remote viewing that has cracked him and given him mental problems and is the reason... It's all gone wrong for him. So he's still trying to leverage basically blackmail. That was at the beginning. This is way before his book comes out. And he and N. Dames go into business together in a private remote viewing company called SciTech. And it was early 90s. And so these are the tasks they are assigned or contracted to do. What made the Soviet Phobos Mars probe fail? What caused the devastating 1908 Tunguska explosion in Siberia? An attempt to future engineer a deep space propulsion system, a relook at the ill-fated Korean Airlines Flight 007, finding an explanation for crop circles. They're private sector, but they're being contracted by the military? No, they're by private people. So it's just, can you explain wild, unsolved mysteries for us? Yeah, so you're essentially like a psychic. In the sense of a psychic has a private business and people come wanting to contract them for stuff, but this is with remote viewing and as remote viewing is the medium to do it. Huh. This almost sounds journalistic, what they're trying to do. Like they're not telling people how many kids they're going to have or if they're going to meet their wife or something. They're they're trying to dissect stories that are in the popular imagination mm-hmm. and provide a narrative to explain a phenomenon that has occurred. Well, how many times do you hear about someone who had military experience, had a military career, and then they get into the private sector and they start mm. a security company? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. something that related to their military job. That's what these guys did. <laughs> They're taking their transferable skills and trying to use them. But here's an example about how Ed Dames and, to an extent, David Morehouse, they're kind of a corrosive duo. So Ed Dames mm-hmm. at the helm of this organization gets pretty 
steered into conspiracy theory quickly. So he brings in Paul Smith to assist with a viewing for a client on the ozone hole, which <laughs> was a big issue at the time. Yeah. So Smith is given the task of how's the ozone hole problem going to play out? Mm. So they're, they're future casting. Yes. And it's also a timeline question. He describes it as a sensory mm. experience of following this thread of what can happen. What will happen and when with this particular issue. Mm-hmm. He calls it a timeline exercise, and Hmm. he says it reveals the sense that the ozone layer will continue to thin and deteriorate until 95 or 96, and then it will demonstrate sudden thickening, very thick in 2000, thinning out slightly, and then be more or less stable afterwards. And in the report that Ed Dames produced for the client, it ignores all the optimism in recounting what was said and combines the grim first part about the deterioration with a a worldwide outburst of volcanic activity starting in 96, ongoing irreversible ozone depletion leading to catastrophe. He then also predicts most food would have been grown in giant climate-controlled greenhouses by then. Uh One telling phrase on page three of the report is apparently, a die-off will occur on a global ecological scale, and eventually life would virtually cease to exist outside of artificial structures or underground shelters. And he completely ignores the last parts of Paul's timeline exercise, even though history has shown that he was right about that. Yeah, that's fascinating. He made a fairly specific timeline that more or less as far as I know, tracks with what we know from real scientific observation. And his colleague basically just took the premise of something wrong with the ozone and spun it into a pretty classic apocalyptic scenario. And keep in mind, that was done in the private sector at the time for a private client. But it shows how Ed Dame is situating his viewpoint on these things. He's going catastrophic. Hard worst case scenario. So let's jump back into the government. (laughs) (laughs) So blood is in the is in the Mm -hmm. water for the program and a bunch of bureaucratic handlings go on. At one point they get brought up to Washington and do a remote viewing in front of senators, and I think it was 92. And that's where you have the, I think, more famous scene of one of the female remote viewers very accurately getting the coordinates of a chemical refinery site in Libya very correct in front of several senators. Was this, were they just curious or was this like a, an intelligence subcommittee or something? It was a subcommittee. They were, they were probing it. So it was a double line coordinates and she nailed it. So this was a legit on the books congressional meeting. They brought in military intelligence basically, and she found a chemical weapon factory. The coordinates were to Gaddafi's chemical weapons thing in Libya at the time. And so she's being tested against those coordinates and in a double blind, she gets it. So one of the senators has provided those coordinates to the monitor ahead of time. The monitor doesn't know what the coordinates are. And then giving it to the viewer, viewer nails it in front of the senator that gave the coordinates. This isn't what's her name who uses spirit guides. This is a more classic remote viewer. Yes. This is the gal who actually criticized her methodology. Uh, Okay. Okay. So that's a pretty good hit. And that was in 92. But the base of supporters who want to keep furthering the program is sort of collapsing and the strength of people who just want it gone are finding their footing. And again, bureaucratic movement of any sort of office company program that wants shut down. And the program ends up getting kicked over to the CIA in 94. Mm. 
And the CIA has hired a research firm called the American Institutes of Research to evaluate the remote viewing program and produce a report, which is henceforth known as the AIR report. And despite one of the researchers, Jessica Utz, saying, quote, using the standards applied to any other area of science, it's concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. But one of the other researchers is Ray Hyman who, if you remember, he was a big skeptic from part one Mm -hmm. and was in league with James Randi. And he just categorically recommends against remote viewing, which echoes the sentiment of a lot of the CIA directors at the time, who include Robert Gates, who's director of the CIA at this point. Of course. So what what is the discourse exactly? Because I'm still kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop on this is satanic or unchristian versus is this reliable? Because they they do have a lot of that methodological background, even if they've strayed from that. But are are people tired of them because they think it's embarrassing, because they think it's evil, or just pragmatically we can't justify the expense? I think it's the most mundane reasons of I don't like it, it rubs me the wrong way, and it could rub someone the wrong way because of their religious background, because of their worldview, because you don't want to be associated with anyone who claims to be doing something psychic in very conservative government organizations. So they're having feelings, basically, and they're kind of looking for a narrative to just unplug this. I mean, keep in mind, you can't be married to a foreign citizen when you're working for some of these agencies. So- We're at that level of conservatism. Yeah, yeah, okay. Then an article breaks in England about the program. Mm -hmm. And in November 1995, an evening talk show called Nightline, which I've never heard of, breaks this as their topic. The government has been using psychic spies for decades. Yes, they have. And on the show are some of the old remote viewers, along with the researchers of the air paper, the CIA director Robert Gates, and they... Discuss the program and it comes, it's the beginning of it being ridiculed in the public eye. And this is where Gates makes the claim that it was never giving actual intelligence, that it wasn't useful. It's the director of the CIA getting out in front of a media narrative. So he's, he's trying to do PR and like save face. They didn't just voluntarily be like, Oh yeah, this is real. We're happy to talk about Mm -hmm. it. These, these guys are coming back being like, there's, there's more to it than the snappy headline. And it's pretty much shut down then. Yes. Yeah. And then six months later, Ed Dames goes to Coast to Coast Late Night Radio with Art Bell. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about what he's foreseen viewings, natural disasters, humanity will start to have to go go food underground, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is just such a common thing you hear. Morlocks, yeah. The apocalyptic mindset has has really found a home on that program in this time. And government conspiracy doesn't seem so far-fetched when it was just on essentially – Late night. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the director of the CIA thought it was serious enough to make an appearance, whatever else is going on. And the title Psychic Spies. It's really mixing messages. And Ed Dames at this point was also teaching remote viewing. He has a company, Mm. so he's teaching it to people. And one of the graduates from his course is an assistant professor of political science at Emory University named Courtney Brown, who also comes on the Art Bell Show. And He's started using remote viewing to see aliens. And there's a photograph that gets shown around, and it has a strange object escorting the recently discovered Hale-Bopp comet as it enters our solar system. And it looks like a little small object coming with the comet. And Brown excitedly announced that shortly after the photograph had been unveiled earlier in the day, two teams of the strained viewers had remote viewed the object. Based on three sessions, he concluded that the object was four times the size of Earth, 
was part manufactured, part natural, was crewed by intelligent entities, and had been sent by the Galactic Council on a mission to deliver a message to mankind. Brown then claimed the government knew all about it and was refusing to tell anyone. And the photos went up on Art Bell's website, and people crashed the server trying to see it. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Google image search. First, I'd like to do a dramatic reading with you. All right. You're going to be Courtney Brown, and I'll be Art Bell. Because okay. I think it's important to hear what this language sounds like yeah, when we get yeah. there. And this comes out of also John Ronson's book. He has the full exchange in here. And he seemed, compared to other books that really went into more narrative timelines, his was really episodic in to its detriment, mm-hmm. to its benefit. But this was one of the benefits. So... And this is from Coast to Coast Talk Radio? Yes, this is from the radio program. So it's a transcript of Art Bell and Courtney Brown talking. Okay. So I'll be the host, Art Bell. Imagine me with a good mustache. Got it. I've seen the Hale-Bopp photograph, and it really is odd. There's something really big out there. I have no idea what it is, but whatever it is, it's real. Well, Professor, what the hell is it? I'm willing to tell you. Do you want me to tell you? Tell me. Now, direction is to be noted that Courtney attempted to sound scientific and level-headed, but he was unable to conceal his excitement. The information I'm about to give you is so far-reaching, so incredible, you're going to be saying, how could this be? Remember, I'm a PhD. Right. This object is approximately four times the size of the planet Earth, and it's headed our way. It apparently has tunnels in it. And it is moving by artificial means. It is under intelligent control. It's a vehicle. And there's a message coming from it. Oh boy, there's a message coming from it? These beings are trying to communicate with us. This object is sentient. It's alive. It is knowing. It's something like the obelisk from 2001, A Space Odyssey. It has hallways in it. This is good news. Our time of ignorance, our time of darkness, is coming to a close. We're entering a time of greatness. There are more of them coming. What? My lord, my lord. There are more of these coming, folks. This is not a fake War of the Worlds broadcast. This is breaking news. I feel like I've been hit with a sledgehammer. Art, this one is real. There was a short silence then, and then Art Bell spoke, and his voice trembled slightly. Somehow, I always felt I'd be on hand for this. End dramatic reading. (laughs) So people start emailing from all over to Brown and his team, and one of the emails reads, amongst thousands of others, will the companion raise us to the level above human in a pristine white house in a very rich suburb of San Diego, California, mid-March 1997, a former music teacher from Texas called Marshall Applewhite turns on his video camera, pointed at himself and said, we're so excited, we don't know what to do because we're about to re-enter the level above human. And someone from this group had posted a message on their website and it read, Red alert, Hale-Bopp Comet brings closure to Heaven's Gate. The website included a link to Art Bell's site, and then Marshall Applewhite and his 38 disciples all put on their Nike sneakers, roll a quarters in their pockets, lay down their bunk beds, and took a lethal cocktail of sedatives and alcohol. And I believe they were going to get a ride on the comet. And then, only a few months later, it gets proven the photo was a hoax. I have no words for this. It does seem like a reach to fully attribute the blame to Art Bell. They had other sources that they were using to 
contrive this narrative, right? It's not mm-hmm. just that this story was presented about Hale-Bopp Comet, or, or is it? I don't well, know. Well, the guy who took the photo, Chuck Schremek, he was apparently mm-hmm. a real prankster in real life. He died in like 2000. And the theory is that he'd probably heard Ed Dames previously on the program and then reached out with the photo as kind mm-hmm. of a prank. And definitely got out of hand. Courtney Brown was banned from coming back to coast to coast ever, but Ed Danes was not. He came back a few more times. So clearly we can't responsibly use mass communication, I think is the message here. We, we're we just not capable of it. I mean, side note, Art Bell died a couple of years ago, mm. pretty recently. Someone at some point had to have brought this to their attention and been like, what do you have to say for yourself? They did. And that's when it came out as a hoax. There was quite a lot of uproar in the Coast to Coast community. Uh. But it's after the fact, man. Anyway, let's talk briefly. I want to talk briefly about aliens. I dislike the subjects of aliens in general. Really? I find the personal abduction story really interesting. The personal yeah. experience of it. I think it's probably a transcendental experience. And if aliens are real, the experience of them is probably a psychedelic experience. But it can't be confirmed. And nothing about aliens can be confirmed outside of one's own experience or the, let's say, legacy of interest. And the way there's sort of alien lore in this whole world that grays and whites and this structure around it that cannot fundamentally be confirmed yet is so vast makes me itchy. And the whole topic is a little bit too wild and wooly for me (laughs) at this time. At this time, I will tack it on. What are your thoughts about aliens? I love the idea of aliens. And I find it really interesting to see diverse representations of alien. Like we all know the oversized head, black eye, you know, green or gray man thing and flying saucers, but like Arrival, where the the nonlinear time octopus creatures come out, the septopods, great. You know, it's it's just fun thought experiments. But in the context of real interactive experiences. It kind of seems to fall into the same vein as, uh, you know, angels or saints or spirits in a, in a sort of, they're on a different plane. They can't be comprehended. They're trying to interact with us, but it's hard to get the messages right. It just seems like a general place to put unexplainable experiences slash belief in, you know, a, a transhuman plane. And I, I can see how that would fit in with the sort of new age philosophy. It's it's really just there's some things we can't explain and they're difficult to measure. And you can call it magic. You can call it psychic energy. A lot of different people are trying to approach it. And aliens are in there somewhere too, right? Yeah, I think I think as a topic, it'll be further down my list than any of the others we might touch on. But it's good to just establish where we are going forward on. Yeah. So what happens to the rest of our timeline after this? Biographies start coming out. Some books like Mm -hmm. Remote Viewers, A Secret History of America's Psychic Spies by reporter Jim Schnabel are pretty true to life and they're a good read. Right. Others, like David Morehouse's Psychic Warrior, are more sensationalist and they play pretty fast and loose with uh, what happened, as do the does the book by Mars called Psy Spies. And I really liked best Joe McMonagall's book, Memoirs of a Psychic Spy, and Paul H. Smith's Reading the Enemy's Mind Inside Stargate, the American Psychic Espionage Program. Because while McMonagall's there for the beginning of the arc and Smith for the latter, they're both really situated in their military experience. And I definitely Mm -hmm. get the sense they wouldn't have written a biography if it wasn't that they were terrible biographies beforehand. And they comment Mm -hmm. a lot about their lives and just the bureaucratic BS that's going on around them. And there's 
all this bureaucratic detail that is a little mind-numbing, but I think really crucial to situating just how mundane the rise and fall of this program is, Mm. and how something like Psychic Spies can sound so fantastical, but it's just, if you put Psychic Spies into the office, it does something like this. That almost makes it more credible than anything, because I kind of think the popular idea would be, if psychics were real, they it would be this huge breakthrough. And, you know, if magic or new age energy or whatever, if it were real and it could be measured and practiced, you'd read about it on the news. In reality, we we would attempt to exploit it. Bureaucracy would get in the way, as it does with most good ideas that don't conform to general conservative military tradition. Like I, I find that more plausible. And I mean, there's also no huge villains in this. I mean, Ed Dames is pretty wild, but no more than anyone's weird coworker or annoying coworker. Yeah. And there's there's no greater villains than just competing agendas of people higher up on the totem pole. Well, and unlike uh, a total snake oil salesman who is sort of directly trying to scam someone or a fake psychic, you know, kicking tables, because of the bureaucracy, there's layers of people buying in, even if you want to say they're scamming the government or they're scamming the military and, you know, making money off of this. So it's it, it doesn't seem as one person doing acting in bad faith compared to a lot of other stories in the, the the long the long history of exploitative psychic behavior. And I suppose the ending legacy we can leave remote viewing on is actually the founding of the International Remote Viewers Association. There was a lot of familiar faces in their ranks, both when they founded and as they went on. And crucially, they really emphasized the original SRI protocol and the ethics of remote viewing and what distincts remote viewing from general psychic viewing phenomena. They don't use that language, but that's clearly what they're trying to do. Keep the integrity of remote viewing alive. That's no different from a former Navy SEAL going, this was the workout regimen we used. You know, opens a gym, writes a book about how to get fit like a Navy SEAL. They're just taking what they did in the military and privatizing it. So it was founded in 1999. Russell Targ was the first president. They host conferences. They're a hub for a community. They have practice sessions, info. It's... It's the spot to be if you're interested in it. And they have a lot of resources and links. And this seems to be the home of reputable remote viewing here on out. And and unlike this push to gain strategic intelligence, they're not trying to blur the lines into predicting the future. They're fully focused on the, the highly methodological remote viewing approach. Yes. And especially the feedback aspect and having it under right, right. the circumstances and not being front loaded and things like that. And I'll leave us off on a quote mm-hmm. from Ronald Reagan on psychics in 1986. Yes. I found it difficult to write them off entirely. The scriptures say there will be such people. He said a lot with a little there. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of... With both hands managed to appease everyone and say nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very diplomatic. I'm a good Christian conservative Republican president. There's things out there. I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs>